From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. In the first episode of our mini-series focusing on translational innovator, guest host Hardeep Ranu described the high-risk, high-reward nature of Dr. Elena Aikawa's project to understand the process of calcification in heart valves. In this second installment of the series, Dr. Aikawa and Mark Blazer, a research fellow in her lab, join Hardeep to discuss the importance of the support from translational innovator and where Dr. Aikawa's research is today. Dr. Elena Aikawa is the director of the Vascular Biology Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Okay, so why did you apply for the award that you did, you know, for the one working um, with me? And we can also talk about the previous one as well, if the micro- <laughs> microscopy one, but yeah. So the, the actually, interestingly, both uh, awards somehow, somehow related, you know, uh, it, they were not like two separate studies, they were uh, interconnected studies. And I, I think this is a, um, a very important because we, we got um, this award like two years in a row and actually then it was extended for another year. So it really gave us um, opportunity to uh, complete the study in a way um, so we published it uh, with um, you know, Mark um, as a co-first author for the, for the paper in uh, nanomaterials. And I think it was extremely exciting. So why did we do that? Um, uh, I don't know how much uh, our, our listeners know about heart valve disease, probably very little, but heart valve disease is very... Uh, very big problem and unmet medical need uh, because um, there is no treatment for heart valve disease and the and there are no good models to study heart valve disease neither in vitro nor in vivo so um, because of that and the, the only only uh, treatment for heart valve disease is surgical or transcatheter valve, valve replacement. So we need to understand that, that it's open heart surgery or in, invasive uh, valve replacement. So that's why we, need, we needed to create some kind of model to study this disease um, in order to provide a drug to the community uh, for the treatment um, because uh, there is again no no substance no no good models available, and no therapy is available. So what uh, we came up with an idea that f- first of all first of all for the first uh, uh, part of the uh, proposal uh, several years ago, Josh Hutchison, who is now independent investigator, and myself um, investigated microcalcifications and microcalcification and we came up with the idea how to grow microcalcification in three-dimensional culture okay so that can kind of like gave us a boost to um, uh, start bioprinting of um, uh, those 
you know, like little tiny valves and uh, imply microcalcifications or implicate microcalcifications uh, um, into these um, bioprinting structures. And why it was important? Because uh, that could serve as a first three-dimensional model of um, uh, valve and eventually for calcific aortic valve disease. Um, so, and that was very, very novel, actually. We patented this, um, uh, you know, 3D structures and how we can grow microcalcifications. Um, and eventually when Mark joined the lab, we um, decided to go further and not just have like little valves with microcalcifications, which we could individually treat with different inhibitors or different um, to have like osteogenic medium to induce those microcalcification growth and so on. So when Mark came, he came with, with the idea that we can do, we can extend this um, bioprinting to multi-well format. And that would allow us to do high throughput screening. So maybe Mark, you can uh, pick from here, take, take from here. Absolutely. And so, you know, for me, my background is engineering, but also uh, valve pathobiology. And so this is a really interesting opportunity for me to meld those two uh, areas and to be able to put something interesting uh, out in that interdisciplinary space between the two of them. And so from our perspective, the Catalyst grant gave us access to a bunch of high-tech cutting-edge imaging um, technology that we didn't have available on site. That allowed us to do a lot of work in terms of validating the high-throughput approach, validating the pathobiology we could develop inside of these small bioprinted structures. Uh, it led us to collaborations with people like Robert Langer at MIT to be able to uh, push this bioprinting technology to the next level. Um, and then, like Elena was saying, it really potentiates using these structures for drug discovery, right? Because the reality is that in the drug discovery field, typically you're screening millions of molecules uh, against cells growing in flat 2D uh, sheets. And those flat 2D sheets really don't recapitulate the microenvironment of the aortic valve, right? The aortic valve is 3D. It's got different uh, stiffnesses of tissue. The cells inside of it respond to those stiffnesses in different ways when they undergo disease um, development. Uh, there's, there's fluid flow on either side of the valve, and all these things influence how the valve responds to both disease, but also potentially to drugs. And so the idea was that one of the reasons the valve disease doesn't have drugs is simply the fact that our 2D screening approaches up to now haven't mimicked all of that interesting biomechanical biology. So what we, what we did then is we, we used 3D bioprinting to print arrays of heart valves on a chip or valve organoids or whatever sort of uh, fancy buzzword you want to use to describe what we were doing here, but printing these highly reproducible arrays of small 3D structures into the 96 well plates, for example. And in that format, you can use each of those single wells to screen these, these millions of uh, candidate drug molecules in a setup that is much more uh, reflective of the native in vivo environment of the heart valve. And so that was the approach that we took. And that was one of the reasons that we were so successful as Catalyst is we could leverage all the 
the imaging technology at HCBI and all the collaborators we had available to us to, to get that across. And the other thing I want to mention is that from my sort of practical side of things, right, me being a young fellow starting up in uh, Elena's lab, it also had a lot of practical um, benefits for me. Um, it was an opportunity to build a track record of grant funding, right, and, and being able to write successful grants. Even in this relatively small pilot context, it's still really important to, to build that up. Uh, it opened up access to the NCATS reviewer exchange program for me, right? And so now I'm, I have a small but growing track record of, of being experienced as an NIH program peer reviewer. Um, so other things from a career development point of view that have been side benefits to, to participating in this in this program as well. Yeah, could you, you know, like you mentioned, it's relatively small, it's $50,000, but you got a lot out of it. You know, can you just kind of talk about what you use the money for? Because clearly it was, you know, like I said, well spent. Uh, thank you. Thank you for noticing that. Actually, um, it's 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 good. I didn't think about it, but it's actually a good point. Yes, indeed, we we were able to patent um, our first, uh, you know, three D structures. Uh, second, we published this paper in Nanomaterials um, with uh, Mark as a co-author, and then actually very very recently just because of um, one of the students who worked on a, that original project, Jessica Roos, I don't know, you, you probably even didn't meet her. She was the first, first, first student who works with, uh, worked with Josh. Uh, we just uh, published PNS paper where we actually use this uh, small uh, bioprinted structures introduced microcalcifications in those structures and treated them with bisphosphonates. And we showed that those microcalcifications calcification could be reversible. And I think this is, in my opinion, is almost like breakthroughs, I'm sorry, breakthrough in the, in the field because uh, we still don't know whether microcalcification or calcification in vivo in humans or in animals is reversible. But we were able to demonstrate it by imaging and by morphology of um, uh, those microcalcifications. So this that this is a what how, how many things in addition to what Mark mentioned we were able to get from there. Uh, and I agree, it's much more than uh, 50k. Um, but how did we use 50K? Um, we used it mostly for the imaging of Harvard um, imaging facility. And that was uh, very helpful for us because we, we could uh, do so many things. We could look at the um, calcium and uh, phosphate um, inside those vesicles. We were confirming that they actually indeed calcify in vesicles. We, um, we did this three-dimensional uh, structure of the vesicles. And for the first time, we were actually able to see how microcalcifications form at the level of the one single individual vesicle. So they aggregate with each other, they merge, and then they nucleate hydroxyapatite, and uh, they become microcalcifications. So we were able to look at the kinetic uh, of formation of microcalcification using a uh, Harvard imaging facility. And uh, otherwise, you know, there is no, no, no modalities, other modalities on the market which allows us to 
look at uh, those uh, kinetic of microcalcification formation and also how they um, kind of reverse uh, and become not harmful anymore. Mark, and I'll yeah, I'll just tag onto that. So, so HCBI allowed us to access ultra high resolution confocal uh, microscopy that allows us to, to really look at single vesicles undergoing the calcification process, like Lena was saying. Um, it also allowed us to access some really cutting edge multi-photon modalities that allowed us to look deeper into tissues from our, our 3D uh, bioprinted uh, structures, but also animal model tissues to allow us to look more deeply into those, um, to look at calcification forming deep inside these tissues and in such a manner that you wouldn't be able to see from, from normal confocal microscopes, for instance. And the third was the cell discoverer um, and its uh, subsequent um, updates at HCI, HCBI, which is a high content imaging system that specifically allows you to image frequently, repeatedly, and automatically um, over long periods of time, multiple wells in, in a dish. So you could load your 96 hole plate in there and ask it to image each well of the dish every hour for 20 days. And you can start to, to gain a, a, a rapidly automated and quantitative uh, set of data for your bioprinted array. And so that was what we were able to use to generate all this data in terms of how our bioprinted arrays were calcifying over time and, and how different molecules were able to modulate that calcification. So those were the big things at HCBI. We also used some of the funds to um, allow us to do some pilot sequencing at some of the Harvard facilities. And so that allowed us to, to validate some of the omics approaches we applied to validate disease development and disease inhibition in these um, arrays. And the last thing we did is we got access to some really cutting edge scanning electron microscopy and transmission electron microscopy from Harvard cores as well that allows us to validate um, some of the extracellular vesicle biology and calcification biology that we see in these in these tiny structures that are really ultra high resolution. So those were the specifics that allowed us to um, really leverage these data sets uh, into a validated and uh, sort of tie a bow on this project and, and be able to publish it. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. Um, you can be honest about this, but what, if any, value did the project management or sort of the meeting, you know, every four to six weeks and the, you know, in the meetings when we got everybody together, do, did you think there was a value added in that or or not? Hopefully, hopefully it's yes. But <laughs> I, I can start and Mark can finish um, because I think he has uh, individual meetings with you, um, so he can uh, kind of talk uh, about that. But I can I can talk about PI meeting with uh, presentations from um, PIs and uh, their teams. So I, I, in my opinion, I mean, despite that it's actually time consuming and you really need to spend half a day for discussions and, uh, but it gave us so much opportunity to look what other labs are doing and meet with other PIs and meet with you guys, uh, with uh, Catalyst uh, um, uh, leadership, uh, including you and uh, Gary Gray, who really, uh, you know, I, I, I felt personally so much support from, from the uh, Catalyst team. So that, that um, encouraged us to kind of move, move forward, despite that, you know, 
that was, uh, uh, again, those meetings were indeed, you know, uh, time consuming. But, you know, uh, learning from others, uh, talking to uh, Catalyst leadership, um, seeing what other groups are doing and which which level of research they are at and, you know, um, collaborating with them. We have few collaborators. That was, uh, that was amazing. Um, we also met with the group of uh, people, um, patients who had scleroderma at that time. You know, that, that, that was probably most, uh, I don't know, heartbreaking <laughs> um, event for me. And um, Mark, you were there, right? You, we, we were together. I was. Yeah, and you know those, those patients really uh, kind of stimulated our thoughts. We met with several people um, after that to to kind of like extend our collaboration and think how we can potentially treat scleroderma, um, even though it's not necessarily same as the valve disease, but it, it has same problem. It has uh, those people have fibrosis and calcification, so potentially mechanisms. Uh, uh, could be similar, and this is something what I'm still looking forward to investigate in in, in my future studies. And so, thanks, Elena. Uh, and so, I would say, in addition to what Elena said about the the large update meetings, uh, I totally agree. Like, it was a really nice opportunity to just cross incubate ideas amongst a group of PIs and fellows that are really interested in innovation, because uh, that's a slightly separate focus in some sense to traditional biomedicine. So, so just being around people that had a similar focus, a similar idea, a similar set of values in terms of wanting to push the research in that direction, as well as the standard uh, publishing sort of approach was, uh, it was energizing and it was nice to see. Uh, I think we, Elena and I both developed some collaborators out of that, had uh, great ideas, feedback from people that had backgrounds not at all associated with basic science that we're working on, but had ideas for local resources, right? Try this lab, try this sequencing facility, try these people with this microscope, they might be able to fix your problem. Because we've got everything you would ever want in terms of biomedical research here in Boston, but knowing the specific person to go to who can solve your problem really quickly is, you know, that's like the the lost art and or, or the, the tricky bit of information that can save you months um, when it comes to putting a project together. So that was really beneficial. But, you know, I, I think Mark is completely right. Especially, I think it was very helpful for postdoc levels because they learn from each other. They learn how to present to a different audience, not just uh, their own peers, right? Not, not just uh, other postdocs, but actually uh, uh, other PIs from different fields who are not doing the similar research. So you, need to, you needed to uh, give a presentations uh, in the language so everybody would understand that, right? So that, that, I think that was very good experience um, actually for both, for PIs and uh, postdocs as well. Sorry, Mark, uh, Mark I, I just took uh, over. No, that sounds like the exact thought I was, that, that I was finishing, right? The idea that speaking to industry, speaking to VC, speaking to those sorts of people requires a different approach. Uh, those people care about different things and different deliverables. And it was nice to sort of at least get that, you know, uh, ingrained into our heads early on before we would ever be going to approach those people was a nice little um, 
a reminder and wake up call. And then the other thing I'll say, uh, Hardeep, about the project management uh, and the, the meetings that we had regularly. Uh, for me, it was uh, really consistent with uh, the approach that I know the engineering industry takes. The project management, uh, scheduling, deliverables, timelines. And so it was, I think, A, for anyone in biomedical science who's interested in going into industry in the future, this is the sort of thing that uh, we all have to get used to. Uh, and so uh, experiencing it now is is just a nice early uh, introduction to that. And B, you know, these are the sorts of things that are well-proven to keep people on track and to have uh, productive projects and have deliverables at the end of, uh, of the time. And so I, I think it was great. You know, we, we don't always get that level of um, accountability, let's say, or, or that's not quite the right word, but um, being able to stick on on task and stick to a timeline. And, and so I think from that respect, it was really helpful to have, I forget, was it once every month, once every two months, something like that? It was like four to six weeks, probably yeah. every five weeks, something like that. Yeah, so even just a check-in every every month or two and, and uh, uh, troubleshooting check-in are there issues you know what can we do to help who can we put you in contact with to get you over this particular developmental hump that you're dealing with right now i think it, it also helped that you know no issues sort of languished in the background they were always brought to light and we could overcome them regularly and so i think that was a a nice little uh, addition and it's also nice to have someone external from the lab to talk to about that right you know just a, a new voice um uh, a new person to bump those ideas off of it's it's really useful and so it's a great opportunity and a nice part of the of the system that was set up yeah, yeah. Thank, you. thank you for that Kardeep, and thank you for your uh guidance uh through, through <laughs> <laughs> yeah so well for me i enjoy it because i get to um well a, i get to visit a, a different building different you know surroundings and see what other people's labs are like and also i also get to hear about your research and you know and for me it, it's sort of in terms of my lifelong learning it's it's always a benefit for me to like be Oh, okay. Now I've learned something, the surface level of this particular type of research. Um, and Mark, you were saying something about innovation and you're an engineer doing biology, uh, biomedical research. So one thing that I was, I have just read is this book called Range by David Epstein. And it's about people who are sort of a generalist. So they have a broader background than somebody who's done something for the same thing forever. Sort of, it, it's sort of the Tiger Woods versus Roger Federer is the most, um, I think, relevant analogy. And so one of the things that I've been looking, thinking about is in, in the world of the people I've worked with, how much, you know, it's sort of like being able to look at something and say, okay, this is a problem but I've seen this elsewhere in when I was, you know, fishing or something like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, you know, whatever it is, it, it could be, you know, um, something in that way, that the broader the background, that the more innovation you can sort of get. Be because you're not having, looking at something as in with this tunnel vision, single view. 
Absolutely. And I hope uh, hiring committees are all built up of people like you in the future from here. So, <laughs> so I'll take that. Um, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think, you know, the reality is for, uh, I'm all opine for a bit, but I think, I think science is becoming more and more interdisciplinary. We're tackling, tackling bigger and bigger problems. The low hanging fruit is more and more frequently gone and it's only going to get harder moving forward and these big problems are not simple and, and they will require interdisciplinary um uh, skills and expertise you know elaine and i are, are working on other projects right now trying to get other things off the ground where we have you know what elena 10 15 collaborators from across the world all different backgrounds from clinical to engineering all to tackle these sort of big questions that have evaded science for a long time. And I think it's the only way moving forward that people are going to be able to really start to make a dent in these big intractable problems. And so, you know, for me, right, I, I do think of myself as a generalist. You're absolutely right. I have some formal engineering training, some formal biomedical training, and a lot of biomedicine training that I've learned on the go. And so I sit in this weird area where I know a bit about drug production from my chemical engineering background. I have this biostatistics knowledge, but I can't call myself a biostatistician. I do omics here. I'm not a mass spectrometrist. I do some bioengineering, but you know, I'm not a bioengineer. And so, but I have the ability to speak to these different groups in a reasonably educated way. I know enough about what they value and what they don't value. And I can act as a conduit between these different experts to make sure that everyone's heard, everyone's seen, everyone knows how to best contribute to move that project forward. And I think people like that, um, if I may toot my horn, own horn a little bit, people like that are going to be important to pushing these multidisciplinary teams forward in the future to solve these sorts of problems. Yeah, I think I think well, well said, um, uh, Mark. But you know, you don't forget that it requires big vision of the PI. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That's putting that team together in the first place, right? You know, uh, I I always um, I always try to build my team and uh, hire people from different backgrounds. You know, I never try to have this team from the same background so they will tackle the same problem from the same vision from the same view. So that's why Mark uh, is a part of the team because of his bioengineering background and bioengineering is very, very important for the valve field because you know, valve is not just tissue, it's tissue which is moving and tissue <laughs> is moving in dynamic surroundings. So I think um, that required very specific knowledge about you know, um, many, many other things, not about how cells are working. Uh, I, I think uh, innovation also has uh, been very big part of my team from from the beginning. Uh, you know, when I started, um, when I received my first first grant, um, I incorporated many modalities which I previously don't use. I'm pathologist by training. You know, <laughs> not 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 even close to. Um, what Mark just described, but you know, I incorporated uh, and learned molecular imaging, and for the first time, identified microcalcifications in the valve and atherosclerotic uh, tissues, which people even didn't know about because calcification was just calcification, you know, <laughs> like big uh, uh, brick of um, uh, calcium, but actually, no one even thought how calcification were built. Without innovation, we cannot move forward. Without innovation, we cannot 
you know, find the treatment for um, our patients. And uh, without innovation, we cannot build very strong teams uh, uh, with different backgrounds. So that's that's my kind of vision here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, no, it's great because also, you know, it, it's about getting that funding when you're trying to do something different, which is what scientists, I think, freak frequently come up against it sort of well, well this is out of your field you know but so we're not going to fund it but I think hopefully that 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 will start to change that that it's you know innovation and creativity you have to allow it to happen exactly um, and exactly so th- this is a very well said uh Artie, because I, I I don't know if you're aware of it but uh, let's say three five years ago NIH didn't want to find any high-risk uh, grants, right? And didn't want to find any uh, high-throughput screening or any screening. You know, they call it fishing expedition, right? And so no, no one uh, paid, paid attention to this kind of grants. No one actually even applied for those kinds of, kinds of grants. But now I think situation at the NIH changing little by little, but what was beneficial with you guys, uh, with Catalyst, that we, you know, you were, you took this high risk project, very innovative one at every point, right? And allowed us to um, not only continue doing that, but also communicate with others within the Catalyst, uh, like yourself and um, uh, the other leadership members and PIs and postdocs from those groups. So which uh, helped us to kind of like think forward and think next next month, next uh, two months, next half a year, what else we can do, what we can learn from other teams and what we can incorporate in our project. So there is no such a thing within NIH, okay? So you get your uh, four-year grant, before it was five, now it's just four. Yeah, you get your four-year uh, year grant and you never meet anyone. Right, you kind of like cooked in in your own team, and you producing your own ideas. Of course, you're reading, you're going to the meeting, but it's different. It's not it's not like you're meeting with the group um, of uh, you know peers who are thinking about similar things, similar innovation, innovative ideas, or something like that. You know, I had something similar only once within NIH when we applied for um, RFA. Uh, and uh, I think 10 investigators uh, within heart valve disease got RFA. And we were able, just because we were so enthusiastic, we were able to meet every year as a team and talk about, you know, our discoveries and uh, how to move forward. And, you know, but, but it was all about calcific valve disease. So it was about the same, it was same team, same theme. And same, uh, same, uh, same people who I know already for like last two decades, but you know, Catalyst brought it to the little bit different level, and I think uh, that was very innovative. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. That's great. It was uh, so nice uh, seeing you and talking to you and talk about yeah, you too. our research. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast. Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash 
Think Research.